So we, uh, we push on into uh, Mark chapter 2 this morning. We are in uh, verses 1 through 17. I'll go ahead and read that <clears throat> for us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw her faith, his, their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so uh, this morning I have titled our lesson Paralysis Analysis. And the theme of our text, I hope to show you this morning, is... Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? And so to kind of work through the text, I've identified three super offensive things that happen in this text, and we'll use those as our guide. So there's there's three things. And uh, and last week, you may recall with uh, uh, Nathan Gerhardt, we uh, we left Jesus left Simon's house and went on a preaching tour. He was healing, he was preaching, and healing some more. We had that that sequence of healing, preaching, and healing. And we start our verse one here in chapter two with a change in setting. We find Jesus back in Simon's home in Capernaum for probably some well deserved rest. But word gets out, and his home is overrun with a crowd. 
there was no more room, not even at the door, it says. Uh, What attracts the crowds to him? Verse 2 says, he preached the word to them. So, uh, you know, cynical Bill is reading this thinking everyone's pressing in and gathering around him because they want to be healed of all of their maladies. But the, the, the crowds are there to hear him preach. And, uh, and we also, I'll refer to it later, but uh, that's what he's there for, isn't it? Okay, so uh, offense number one. Uh, I wonder if you have ever been in a situation where you needed to help a friend or most more likely a loved one and you were willing to do just about anything to help them. Um, Easy thing that I can think of is like if someone needed to get across town right now, you know, I'm willing to bend or break most rules of the road, if you will, right? So I might help you quickly get across town. Uh, Certainly as a younger man, I've done some things that were, uh, you know, perhaps uh, shocking to to some of you in an automobile. But what about uh, like medical things, right? This is is something uh, Pastor Jeff has been dealing with uh, with his mom in the last couple of weeks and getting care. And we sort of assume we put medical people on a on a pedestal we expect that they know what they're doing and we find oftentimes uh that the care is not uh, is not so good and we find that uh, it, that sometimes we have to take a drastic measure and risk offending somebody like a medical professional or or a friend or something that to like that to uh to save someone's life. Uh, and so maybe, maybe that's something that has occurred to you. Uh, you know, I, I can think of in high school, right? Maybe uh, you might risk your uh, reputation as one of the cool kids to reach out and make a friend <clears throat> in school with someone who is otherwise, you know, rejected by the in crowd, right? These things uh, have uh, some risk to us, <clears throat> and we see that uh, some men in our text here took a risk as well. So Jesus' fame is growing, and it seems as if these friends know that if they can just bring their buddy to Jesus, they would uh, they would find the help for their friend that that they need. So we, uh, we see this example in verse four, uh, verse four says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So this is super offensive. Um, this is disrespectful to the audience, to be sure, but even much more so to the teacher, Jesus. So remember, uh, you know, Israel is traditionally, it's a theocracy, right? So men of the cloth, teachers of the, the law, teachers of the Torah are men worthy of great respect. These are, uh, these are the leaders of, uh, of the nation. So uh, remember from, I think it was uh, Peter, that 
teachers of the scripture are worth double honor, right? So at this point in, uh, in Jesus' career, uh, he, the, the crowd see him as a rabbi, perhaps uh, even a prophet, right? So this is, uh, this is a man worthy of great uh, respect. And um, <clears throat> I, I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, most people, when they come over, they ring a doorbell or knock on the door, right? And, uh, and that's our norm here. Um, uh, my closest friends, if I expect you're coming over, come right in. You know, uh, you're welcome. This is, this is a, a home that we share uh, with our friends. But uh, imagine if uh, somebody showed up at your back, your door wall, right? And you're not expecting something, right? It raises the, uh, the sort of level of offense, all right? And it depends on who it is, uh, certainly as well, right? Uh, well, <clears throat> coming in through the roof, of course, would be just uh, absolutely unthinkable. So these, these houses that they lived in, in, in Capernaum, the walls were built with stones held together by uh, plaster. So they would use plaster to smooth out the walls and, and hold the stones together. But across the top, engineering being what it was in, in, the, in those days, was, would be covered with uh, wooden slats and then uh, you know, mud, clay, and, uh, and, and branches uh, from trees to uh, provide the covering on the top. And then uh, you would have uh, often a set of stairs in the back so that you could run up, maintain it, but also hang out on the, on the rooftop in the cool of the evening and, and, uh, and things like that. It's the, um, it's the Capernaum version of the folks from Kentucky who hang out in their garage with the garage door open. And I don't know why they don't hang out on the deck or whatever, but... But it's a thing. We've, uh, we've, we've certainly uh, seen that. So, so the house is overrun by, uh, by people from far, from near and far. It's, it's overrun. And, um, and that already makes uh, me somewhat uncomfortable. Although we don't have enough people for Euchre yet. So please uh, come. Uh, you won't overrun the house. But, uh, but this is super not cool to bust in the roof of a of a rabbi's home and uh and this rabbi is due uh, a certain bit of of respect so why'd they do it well their friend was paralyzed right so <clears throat> he's probably a uh, paraplegic um and uh, and we don't know if it's congenital. We don't know if, uh, if he broke his back pulling off a stunt like this, breaking through someone's rooftop uh, in the past. Uh, but as they're, you know, sort of stripping away the rooftop with mud and clay and branches, dirt and nasty raining on the crowd and the teacher... This would be so offensive, and yet Jesus is not offended. He sees this as an act of faith. And I, when I read this, I, you know, I've read this, you know, more than more than a few times here. Um, 
I, I read it not sure what exactly they, uh, they expected, but I, expe I think they got more than they expected. So <clears throat> did they know that Jesus would uh, or could heal him and forgive his sins? Did they know all of this? I, I suspect that they came for physical healing. Their friend needed to be healed. And if anyone could do it, right, this man who uh, perhaps is a, is a prophet with growing fame uh, could do it. And so they put their friend's life in the rabbi's merciful hands. Is there a safer place to be than at the mercy of the one who came to rescue his creation? Now, uh, sin uh, is often associated in the Old Testament with, uh, with physical maladies, right? And so, uh, so we, can't, we can't deny that, um, that there could be a connection there in their minds, right? So, uh, you know, maybe they came for, for healing, but, but somebody who was a paralytic would you know it would it would go through everyone's mind that you know his parents must have sinned or he sinned right there's some uh there's some negative uh stigma there but i can assure you that there wouldn't be much of a life for a paralytic uh this guy's life was essentially worthless there were no uh jobs working at a computer desk in capernaum in that day and so a paralyzed guy would be a burden on his friends and family. Their friend would live on the outside of town and hope to catch the scraps of civilization as it passed by. And so how uh, blessed are those four friends who would bring a man to Jesus? They brought him for healing to get his life back, if you will, and instead, he would find eternal life. You could say that maybe their, their faith wasn't fully formed. Uh, the quality of their faith may have been poor. They might not have known exactly what they, were, they would get. Uh, I suspect maybe they didn't have a complete uh, developed understanding of the gospel. But, oh, the object of their faith was spot on. So uh, let me encourage you this morning that sick people illustrate a creation marred by sin. Physical and spiritual malady should cause us to be merciful and caring. We should be moved to meet the needs of others. And how could we do that? Well, let me encourage you to bring people to hear about Jesus Bring his teaching to people. Bring his forgiveness to those who need it. And so I ask you, can Jesus forgive sins? Well, that's verse 4, because I want to hold verse 5 here a little bit longer in tension, because we will certainly uh, get that answer, won't we? So let's look at the second offense. And, uh, and one thing I want to point out... I. I might be the only one to sense this, but 
Do you guys get the sense that Jesus has been sort of managing his fame, his reputation a little bit? Um, in chapter 1, verse 25, he casts out a demon and tells him to, to uh, be quiet, right? Uh, everybody's looking for him in verse 37, and he, uh, he says, well, let's move on to the next town and get back to preaching. And in verse 44, uh, he heals a leper and tells him to keep it on the down low, I believe, uh, depending on your uh, <clears throat> translation. Uh, but his fame is growing, but he doesn't seem to be fully revealing to everyone who he is. He's preaching and healing like a prophet with authority no one has seen before, but it seems like he's also managing what people know about him uh, up until this point. And that starts to uh, come to a head in verse 5 here. So the relationship between this rabbi, this teacher among the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, really starts to unravel here in this scene. Remember Nathan Miller's description of the scribes, right? These are men of great stature in society. These are, uh, you know, our senators and congressmen of the day, uh, equally as powerful, perhaps uh, equally as corrupt as well. Uh, and the rooftop boys show up with a friend to be healed, uh, and Jesus doesn't do that right away. He, uh, he sees their faith, and in a very loving way, in verse 5, says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Right, so we 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 see the scene, and uh, and the guy looking to be healed, and Jesus forgives his sin, right? And so it's a little bit of a of, of a twist there, uh, and it's a huge problem for some of the scribes. It says in the audience. Well, why? Of course, it's because only God can do that. This man, by saying this in front of this crowd, is saying he's God. This is either blasphemy, punishable by death, or this Jesus is God in the flesh. There's no hiding his identity at this point. We have a problem. So offering forgiveness offends the scribes who now question the identity of Jesus, but this is a problem engineered by Jesus. Until now, how have the scribes and Pharisees done shepherding God's people, the Israelites? How have they done? <clears throat> Not so great, right? The, um, the, the nation seems to no longer long for Yahweh, and they don't seem to be cared for all that much either. They are, uh, you know, the the weak and the sick and those who need to hear the scripture are shunned in society. And so, uh, so things are changing and, uh, and my goodness, that's, uh, that's a problem for the people who are in charge, right? The people with power. And, uh, and so before we go on, I just, we need to, uh, we need to address an issue so that you aren't offended. And it's a, a little doctrinal issue uh, that we see here in our text um, where uh, Jesus 
apparently knows what's going on in the hearts of the uh, scribes. I don't know if you can, uh, if you see that there. Um, this is uh, verse six. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, right? And um, <clears throat> there, so there are some, uh, there are some differences of, uh, of opinion or uh, understanding in just how much divine nature coexisted in the man Jesus, right? Who uh, emptied himself and became a man uh, like us, right? So, uh, so some believe that when he left heaven and became flesh, he set aside all of his, uh, what we would say, like omnipotent uh, type stuff. And his all-knowing, all-powerful uh, attributes were limited by his own doing in order to uh, walk a mile in our shoes, if you will, right? But Mark uses this term, in his spirit, which suggests more than just a reading the room type of knowledge, right? Um, at verse 8, he says, immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. So, there are, there are examples in the Gospels. Jesus knew more about the Samaritan woman than she uh, let on, more about Nicodemus than, uh, than he told him. Uh, if, you, if you're in your notes, you maybe want to just jot down John 2, 23 through 25. It's right before uh, uh, the Nicodemus text would suggest he has a greater knowledge. Um, my... my my thinking, if you will, uh, which is uh, probably not at all helpful, is that Jesus is forgiving a man's sins. <clears throat> he had to know what they were. Uh, so, I, so I, my position is that he knew what was in uh, their hearts. Um, you know, we know he could command his creation. He, um, you know, he had um, uh, some. Uh, uh, you know, he could certainly perform miracles and, uh, and to at least some degree see into the heart of a man. I, I simply don't know how much of his divine nature he had or didn't have as a man, but fortunately it's not the point of our text. So I just want to address it, kind of set it aside that, uh, that the text indicates that he knew what was going on in their hearts, right? And he says, which is easier the point that it is easier to say forgiven because no one can see that, right? Um, I, you know, I could say that to, uh, to Becky, right? Your sins are forgiven and we, you know, we, we don't know simply, right? So uh, it's easy uh, to do that. And they are, by the way, her sins. Uh, but no one knows if that happened, right? So to tell a paralytic to walk has an immediate test to it, right? It has the Benny Hinn test, right? Which is, um, you know, can they walk, right? And so Jesus, though, pushes it even further all the way uh, to verse 10 and says what? He says that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says, take up your mat as the exclamation point. So uh, there, this does demonstrate linkage that we talked about last week of 
healing, which is a mercy, uh, to forgiveness, which is a greater mercy. Uh, and so you, you see this picture that Jesus has come to preach, to bring the good news. And he's walking around in his own creation and he's restoring it. He's making hearts right. He's restoring hearts, but also along the way, restoring people in, uh, in this physical way. So he, he further says uh, here in verse 10 that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So the son of man is, is, is used a lot through, uh, you know, Jesus uses it a lot here in, uh, in Mark's account. And uh, it is most likely what he's saying is that, you know, this man, this human of mankind, it, it's, uh, but it, it does sort of harken back and, and frankly fits to, uh, you know, prophetic type of uh, language that we see in Daniel 7 that, you know, he is a, uh, he does fulfill this prophecy as well. But, uh, but I think that on its face, we should take it at uh, Jesus is saying that, uh, that healing shows that this man has the authority also to forgive sins and, uh, and make things right. And so Jesus is doing what he said he came to do in chapter one, verse number 38 last week, which is namely preaching. Yet he allows an interruption for healing. It shows that he doesn't reject one for the other, but rather they go hand in hand, as Nathan Gerhardt said last week. <clears throat> but here's the thing. No one here in this scene could deny that a paralyzed guy had been healed and his sins forgiven by a man named Jesus. The religious leaders may not like it, but they couldn't say it didn't happen. And so in this exchange designed by Jesus, forgiveness was declared in verse five. It was questioned in verse six, six through nine, and it was validated in verse 11. And look at verse 12. He arose and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. And they said, we ain't never seen anything like this before, right? So who can forgive sins? Jesus. Jesus. Um, how are we doing on time? Okay, so uh, I, I've got just a, a short little excerpt from C.S. Lewis in, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity. In page 54, he says this. It's beautiful. I, my dad used to tell me these words and I didn't know where it came from, but I knew he liked this book. So um, <clears throat> it says, among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. What this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
you must not make you must make your choice either this man was the son of god or else a madman or something worse you can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him lord and god but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us he did not intend to right and so we see him ratcheting that up there and uh and starting move the chess pieces into a checkmate position against the religious leaders jesus is the god who forgives sins i ask you is he your god has he forgiven your sins Let's see what that looks like in the final offense here. Offense number three, I call taxing the system. Okay, so this scene here in verse 13 changes again, right? So we, we leave the house and it says in verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, this is Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them, okay? So, uh, you, you know, this is a theme that we've had all throughout our uh our texts uh in the last few weeks here and in verse 14 he passes by levi at the tax booth levi had no dirt no doubt heard jesus preach and jesus says follow me and levi follows him so don't miss this transaction it's uh you know mark uh mark seems to just like blow through the narrative at breakneck speed right and the learning moments in mark are when he stops and we we get an aside and we get an interaction with jesus and uh and someone whether it's his uh disciples or the uh the pharisees so don't miss this transaction don't let mark's terse writing style minimize the fact that jesus called a sinner to be a disciple and the man responded in faith and followed him Okay, so this is a disciple-making call when he uh, when he says that uh, this, and so uh, we believe that Levi in verse fourteen is uh, is Matthew, uh, a disciple and gospel writer, also described in Matthew nine nine. In Matthew nine nine, uh, his name is Matthew. So it was probably Levi until Jesus called him and he changed his uh, name to uh, Matthew. And this would have surprised the men who were following Jesus and certainly offended some as well. Uh, Now, you all know this, I suspect. We don't have to um, hash out how hated tax collectors were. They certainly are in my house. Um, But... uh, we can't overstate how hated these people were at this time in history. Yes, taxation is theft, uh, you, might, uh, you might say, but tax collectors collected tax like the mafia collected protection money, right? So there were lots of tax collectors in a border town like Capernaum, and they taxed everything. Uh, fishing, road use, uh, transportation of goods, and, uh, and this was a transportation hub, uh, this uh, area of Capernaum. So the Roman tax system, like ours, was complex and varied. Tax collectors were uh, locals 
who would betray their countrymen on behalf of the wicked Roman crown. Tax collectors were morally and ritually unclean. They were the rats of society. And we just added one to Team Jesus, didn't we? Okay, so remember that the Jews would expect the Messiah to rescue them from their Roman overlords, certainly not embrace someone of this uh, nature, someone of this ilk. But if that weren't offensive enough, in verse 15, we see a picture of him reclining at table in his house with many tax collectors and sinners, right? So many followed him that day. I get the sense that that Levi, Matthew, wasn't the only tax collector who followed him. And, and it looks like we're back at Simon's house. It could be Matthew's house, but it's probably Simon's house, the way it's written. But what is clear is that Jesus is the host of this party. Many tax collectors and sinners. And so, socially speaking, this place looked like the Star Wars cantina in Return of the Jedi. I mean, lots of unattractive players here. This is a despicable crowd. You know, hide your watch if you show up to uh, this party, okay? Uh, But what we see here is a picture of Jesus calling sinners to follow him, and then he throws them a banquet feast. He reclines at the table with him. This is, uh, this whole reclining at the table is intimate fellowship. Jesus makes these people his friends. And of course, in verse 16, the religious leaders are way offended here. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, they cry. And so Jesus really increases the the tension uh, between himself and religious leaders. Could he have accomplished similar results and avoided this conflict? I think he could have. Uh, See, though, in this exchange that Jesus is not reckless, but he's not timid either. What he's doing, he's bringing righteousness to unclean people. And so this conflict doesn't come from negligence. Jesus didn't sort of step in it and, you know, and walk into a a situation where he uh, found himself over his head but rather he's escalating, he's provoking the leaders of uh, Capernaum. And this is by design. The religious leaders reject the sinners who need them, like a doctor who won't see patients. They carry the word of God and refuse to use it. They refuse to apply it. They refuse to share it. And so, in this situation here, we see the righteousness of God escapes those religious men who see themselves as righteous. And in verses 14 through 17, rather, we get a sweet picture 
of God's grace. The Pharisees reject the sinners. But Jesus, like a physician looking for patients to heal, accepts the sinners as they are. He is the initiator. See that Jesus sees them, he loves them, he calls them, and what do they do? They turn and forsake their sins, like Levi, like we saw uh, with Zacchaeus, right? And they follow him and enjoy intimate fellowship with their Savior. How beautiful is that, right? So as we, uh, as we conclude my, um, you know, I just kind of share this with you, that uh, the best place for you is to confess your sins to Jesus, to turn from them and enjoy his sweet fellowship and recline at his table. And you can do that today. Amen. All right.